Let's go ahead and dive into another week of our verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word by opening to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 4. And I want us to begin at at verse number 14 of chapter 4. The book of Hebrews, remember, is being written, I believe, to a target audience of Jewish believers in Jesus who have seen the recent lethal and very harsh persecution uh, in Rome particularly, but on the Italian peninsula as well, uh, after the burning of Rome in 64. And so some of these folks apparently were toying with the idea of withdrawing back into their Jewishness, back into their Jewish faith, and being quiet about the Jesus thing, being quiet about the Christian thing. And the author of Hebrews is basically telling them, you can't do that. The Jewish faith is all about the coming of Yehoshua HaMashiach, he who is salvation, the Messiah, the King. And in the process, we've watched the author say that Jesus is no angel. He's better than the angels. Uh, He is not simply a peer of Moses. He is more significant than Moses. Moses only worked in the house of God while Jesus is the son of God. And then one of the most recent things is that he is high priest, greater than Aaron, or any high priest since Aaron. Now, he'll develop that theme much more later in the book. But that's where we pick it up today. Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest, so someone that is interceding with God the Father on our behalf, who has passed through the heavens. So he's not just simply a human high priest, Although he is human, he is a human high priest that is also a citizen of heaven, a a naturally occurring citizen of heaven, if you will. Jesus, that is, he who is salvation, the Son of God. So, since we have him as our high priest, then let's hold fast to our confession. Now, the confession could be the confession of our sins that kicks off our faith, but I think it's more the confession verbally uh, that we see in Peter and then I believe was repeated throughout church history starting from very early on. And that is, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. So we need to hold on to that confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it is important to understand that Jesus, although he is God, 100%, no beginning, no end, always is, He is also 100% human. He was conceived and grew up and uh, was 
having to go to school, then later having to go to work. He had all of those experiences that we have. And in those experiences, as a human, he was tempted to cross lines. But in every circumstance, he did not cross the line. He did it without caving like we all did, which then made him the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. He was able to take our place. And because he's God, he can take the place of more than one person at a time. And that is why he is the perfect high priest. Verse 16, let us then with confidence, all the time when you see the word confidence in our English Standard Version, more than likely it represents this idea of freedom of speech. That is, a confidence to talk to God about stuff, to speak out uh, as someone with relationship with him. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so we can come to God the Father, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of who Jesus is, what he's done, the fact that he is our merciful and compassionate and sympathetic high priest, every last one of us who name the name should feel very confident coming into God's presence from here on out. Chapter number 5, and remember the chapters were not there in the original writing. Those were added for convenience sake later. Uh, so the topic really hasn't changed off of this high priest thing yet. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So that's the reality. Um, as this letter is being written and sent out, the Jewish temple at Jerusalem is still fully functional. It is, I think, at the latest, early 66 that this letter goes out. And so the big crisis uh, that starts later in 66, which then results in the temple being destroyed in 70, none of that has occurred yet. So the writer is thinking about normal procedure in the Jewish temple. And the high priests that are chosen, they are chosen to act on behalf of the people toward God. And what do they do? They go out there and they offer the sacrificial gifts. Uh, sometimes it's animals, sometimes it's the, uh, the fruit of the ground, uh, like wheat or barley or something of that nature. But the really big sacrifices were the ones that were done for sin. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So the point that the author is making here is those high priests, in most cases, should have themselves been sympathetic because they knew what it felt like to be tempted. They knew what it felt like to be put under pressure. Verse 3, because of this, because of their own sin pressures, 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So every priest, every high priest, had to go through the sacrifice process for themselves first, because they were sinners. They had been tempted, and they sinned. Now, that's different with Jesus. He was tempted in all ways, like unto ourselves, and yet he never sinned. So he has all the sympathy with none of the weakness. Verse 4. Now, no one takes this honor of being a high priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, we're not going to get off into the weeds too much about the idea that over time, it was, the high priesthood was bought with bribes or political power. Uh, the point that he is making here is that from the beginning, it was intended by God that he choose the high priest family and which descendant in that family should bear this responsibility. So, the, the point of the author is none of these high priests just get to be there because that's what they want. It's a God choice was the intention. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quote, you are my son Today I have begotten you. Now, you remember that from chapter number one, uh, Psalm uh, two, and the point is that God has never said that phrase to any of his angels. And now he jumps back on that and says, the same God who said that to his son, who is also God, is the same one who made his son, into a high priest. Verse 6, as he says also in another place, quote, and this time it's from Psalm 110, which is also a very important Messianic psalm, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is another one of those things where the author is going to introduce this concept, but he will develop it much more deeply later, and he'll explain why in just a moment. But right now, all we have to know is the same God who said to Jesus, you're my son, today I've begotten you, or claim paternity, relationship, is the same God that said of Jesus, you're going to be a forever priest, just like Melchizedek. Now, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, that is, in the days of his incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So, as Jesus goes through his physical life, he stays in contact with God, the Father, for his own benefit, but also for the benefit of the people around him. 
and we have some examples of his prayers in the Gospels, the longest of which would be uh, John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. Uh, But we also have examples of his prayers uh, for himself, where he goes to the garden, and he is very overwhelmed by the the climax of his ministry, the fulfilling of his name when he becomes the atoning sacrifice for sin. And he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And God the Father was listening through all of that. And God the Father could have saved him out of that situation, but instead he saved him through that situation. God heard his request, but brought the will of God, the intention of God, the ministry of God to fulfillment with Jesus becoming the atoning sacrifice for sin by his death on the cross. So verse number eight says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he suffered a lot. I mean, we talk about that last day, the last week of Jesus being his passion. Uh, Things were very emotional, very involved. He was very invested in all of that. But the reality of it is his entire life was full of suffering because he being in every form and matter, and in reality, God himself. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, and he took on the form of a human being. And then, being tempted in every way, just like unto ourselves, he refused to give in to the sin. And he would have suffered under all of that pressure. And then finally... He laid down his life on behalf of the rest of us who had given in to sin and were brought under the condemnation that comes with that. And so Jesus' whole life was suffering for other people. And so as a son, he learned to obey. He learned to do what was needed by the Father by suffering. And verse 9 says, and being made perfect, that is, coming to his his perfection. And I, I emphasized this once before. It's not that Jesus wasn't all that he could be. He already was. He's 100% God. He's 100% human. He has not sinned, even though he was tempted. He is made perfect in the sense of he comes to the completeness of his mission, And his mission is in his name, he who is salvation. So the writer of Hebrews says, being made perfect, having come to the completion of his mission, he became the source of eternal salvation. Remember that in Hebrew, that's Hoshia, and it's the second element of Yehoshua, Jesus' Hebrew name in its formal sense. Um, He is that salvation. So he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To everyone that will 
name the name, and live the faith. And that's the point of this letter, is that a bunch of people were at least toying with the idea of kind of bypassing Jesus, of going around the name of Jesus because people were being persecuted, even unto death, for the name of Jesus. And so, again, the writer wants his readers to understand, you can't go around Jesus. He is the whole point of everything that's happened. Uh, He is the source of eternal salvation to those that will obey him. And then verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he goes back to that theme from uh, Psalm 110, uh, but he acknowledges at this point why he can't just immediately jump into that topic uh, first thing. Verse 11, about this, about Psalm 110 and the designation of Jesus as being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, about this, we have much to say, and he will get around to it. It's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now, this is a complaint that you see in the Old Testament, you see it in the Gospels, you see it in the New Testament, that there are some tough aspects of the story of salvation, of what God has accomplished and is accomplishing and will accomplish. But it takes effort to make sense of it or to not so much make sense of it, but to absorb it uh, the way that it's intended. And so he's basically critiquing his readers saying, I have to take my time in this because you guys are not focusing like you need to on this. And here, here's his real critique. And I have to acknowledge uh, the need to make this same critique of a lot of Christians today. And it could be that you are one of them that needs to be critiqued in this. But I want to remind you at this juncture that the way you prove the sincerity of your faith is how you take critiques from God. Do you whine about it? Do you complain about it? Do you get mad about it? Or do you hear it and say, I need to fix this? Remember John the Immerser's ministry Jesus the Christ ministry began with this word of challenge. Repent. Repent. Change the way you're thinking. Bring your thinking into alignment with God's way of thinking. And so, let's repent uh, if we happen to be in the category that uh, the author of Hebrews is critiquing here. About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, you see that word, basic, the two words, basic principles there? Uh, stokaya in Greek is what it represents. Stokaya was, best way to explain it in our parlance, learning your one, two, threes, your A, B, Cs, and your primary colors. It was the preschool work, maybe part of the early kindergarten work. It was sitting the absolute basics of learning into place. And so his critique is, some of you guys ought to be teaching some of these deeper things by now, but instead, you apparently still need to be in preschool. And that's not good. And if that, by the way, applies to you, that isn't good. If you have been a Christian 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you're still playing around with the, the building blocks of faith, with the ABCs, 1, 2, 3s, and the primary colors, you've got to get that fixed. You need to soak this stuff up. You need to put some effort into getting your education more complete because you need to be out there helping teach it. All right? Uh, he's not done. Here, here's another metaphor that he uses for critique. You need milk, not solid food. So just like a little baby, you're still drinking your mother's milk. You're still being bottle-fed, perhaps. You need formula instead of eating some real solid food, chewing it with your own teeth. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, that is some pretty heavy-duty critique there, isn't it? Uh, so we need Christians to quit being big babies, to quit being preschoolers when it comes to Scripture, especially when they've been around the church for a long time. You need to get yourself fully educated, and get out there and teach other people. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature, the grown-ups. So we need a whole bunch more grown-ups in the church. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, one of the things we talk about as a metaphor from Scripture is we talk about the Bible, we talk about the Scripture being the sword of the Lord. Uh, we used to have, when I was a kid, Bible drills. Uh, and uh, some of our, um, our uh, Sunday school teachers or youth group teachers would call them sword drills. And the whole idea was to help us find... Uh, places in the scripture quickly. I mean, that was the fun of it, uh, but it had practicality in it. it. They were trying to make us more and more familiar with the scripture itself. Uh, and memorization, same thing. Uh, it, the intention of memorizing scripture uh, in Sunday school 
or in a, a youth group or in church camp, uh, Christian camp. You get bonus points or you get special things done for it. Uh, the, that wasn't just for the fun of it. It was because it's understood from Scripture itself that memorization helps mature us. Practice helps mature us. So if you've got a person that's using a literal sword, they have to practice with it. They have to be familiar with the feel of it, the weight of it, the balance of it. Uh, They have to understand how it works, how to do the parries and the swings and the, the thrusts when we talk about our military personnel, uh, you know, when I was in the military, we had to have training with our weapon, which was the M16 back at that time. And so you had to know how to take it apart and put it together in a specific amount of time. And you had to know how to load it and charge it and and aim it and shoot. And you had to qualify. Uh, and if you didn't qualify, you had to Go back and practice some more until you could qualify. Uh, We weren't doing that just for the fun of it. We were doing it because that was a necessary part of us being members of the military. Because we might be called upon to use those skills to defend our nation, to defend our comrades in arms, to defend the people of our country. Uh, Our police, same thing. They go through training. They go through, you know, those shoot houses and learn how to not shoot innocent bystanders, right? They go through those things constantly because they're trying to make sure they've got what it takes to carry out their mission. Folks, that's the way we need to approach our Bible study. You guys, many of you have been with me a couple of times through the Scripture. Are you better at it by now? Are you able to teach some of these things by now? Because if you aren't, why not? You've got to get yourself better practiced. Uh, Some of you that have been in the church a long time, decades Do you or do you not yet have the skill, the ability to help other people understand the Scripture? If not, why not? Because that's why we're doing all of this stuff, is because we have a mission. And that mission is to shine for Jesus, to be able to share his story, to share his word, to share his morality and his Uh, his salvation. And so my challenge to you as we finish up today is make sure that you're grown up and well-skilled in the Word.